Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The path to reconciliation is one of listening, learning and growing together. A path that recognises the central place of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in our past and in our future. It is in that spirit that we acknowledge the traditional owners of the land and pay tribute to Elders past, present and future. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy issues facing Australia and the world. Policy Forum Pod is produced by the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University. I'm Sharon Bessel, and I'm here as always with my fabulous co-host, Annegretta Hunter. Hi, Annegretta. Hi, Sharon. It's so good to be back with you again, going through what is going to be a fantastic discussion today on an issue that I know is close to many of our listeners' uh, interests and to their hearts. We know we're facing a worldwide housing crisis. From Sydney to San Francisco, policymakers are failing to provide adequate affordable housing. After nearly three decades of uninterrupted economic growth, Australia's housing market is amongst the most expensive in the world. And as our recent discussion with Alan Morris so powerfully revealed, the neglect of social housing in recent decades has contributed to the housing crisis in Australia. But housing policy poses challenges that are broad and deep and that span all levels of government and encompass issues around urban planning, zoning, as well as the narrower housing policy. So to continue our discussions today on how we move beyond the housing crisis and reimagine the role of urban planning in creating sustainable and inclusive communities, we are so delighted to welcome Professor Nicole Gurren. Nicole is Professor of Urban and Regional Planning and Director of the Henry Halloran Research Trust at the University of Sydney. Nicole has authored and co-authored numerous publications and books on urban policy, housing, sustainability and planning. Her research focuses on comparative urban planning systems and approaches to housing and ecological sustainability. Nicole, it's wonderful to have you with us. Welcome. Thanks very much. Nicole, I thought we'd start by talking about the the depth of the Australian housing crisis in Australia, which of course has been widely discussed, and it's creating incredible stress and hardship for many people. We spoke recently on this podcast with Alan Morris about the erosion of social housing in Australia and the very deleterious consequences of those policy decisions over some decades. I wonder if we can begin today by mapping some of the assumptions and policy decisions that have led Australia to having the least affordable housing in the world. Sure. Look, if we go back maybe four decades to the mid-'80s, At that point in time, Australia had started to really reach uh, almost record numbers of households in home ownership, around 70%. Government was delivering around 10% of all new supply was being funded and underwritten by 
government. It didn't all stay in public housing, but it, um, it, you know, it made a significant impact in terms of overall new housing supply. And we also had in most states across Australia, government land organisations that had an explicit, although this was starting to weaken by the 80s, but they um, had an explicit mandate to produce a an ongoing supply of affordable land, house and land packages in particular, almost to help moderate the market and to prevent monopolies. So since that time, of course, we had winds of political and economic change, you know, often described as neoliberalism, so a belief that markets rather than governments are best placed to solve social problems. And with that comes a number of tactics, one of them being privatisation, so you sell off stuff um, in effect. And so from that period on, as Alan may have mentioned is in, in his interview, we started to see, um, for instance, tenants in public housing being able to purchase their dwellings. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but the way that that proceeded contributed to an erosion of stock and we started to see a lesser funding commitment to producing public housing. We also started to see the government land organisations being reoriented around a a kind of commercial model in effect and needing to return a, a, a commercial rate of return to governments and so that eroded their mandate to deliver more affordable house land packages and indeed to moderate the market. And we also saw a shift away from a belief that government could directly supply public housing and more that they might instead support the incomes of very low income renters through a modest subsidy. And at the same time, we also saw government incentivising property investment and in part that was to perhaps pick up the slack that was being abdicated by government in its retreat from the the amount of investment that it had formerly provided in public housing. And that perhaps explains why negative gearing, that generous tax subsidy to landlords became such an important almost baked on feature of Australia's housing system, a a fear that if, for instance, we wound back that tax incentive to to invest in the private rental market, so-called mum and dad investors, that if that was wound back, we might perhaps see less uh, rental supply overall and a, a fear of what that might do to a private rental sector, which has now become the default tenure for life, effectively, for low-income households who were once able, including many low-income and moderate-income, and indeed in in the major cities, some higher-income renters who now are unable to save the deposit, let alone um, manage high mortgages and so have been priced out of home ownership. That wasn't the case. In the 80s, you had even low-income working, um, you know, people in, in, in employment was a reasonable aspiration. Now, in terms of why prices have galloped away, so I've kind of talked about the erosion of housing assistance, or perhaps more properly, the redirection of government's housing assistance away from directly supplying 
homes that are affordable to low and moderate um, to low income renters in particular and the sort of redirection of that government subsidy if you like towards the private landlords as well as this moderate rental subsidy which is is now no longer even alleviating housing stress for almost half of the households that receive Commonwealth rent assistance. So we've had, I've talked about the housing assistance side of things, but in terms of the private market, what it was doing in response to government incentives, generous tax incentives for homeowners, rather than helping people into homeownership, really all of the, the benefits accrue to homeowners property investors, and at the same time, outside of the housing system altogether, we had this global process that was occurring. Uh, many countries deregulated the, the mortgage, the lending markets, in, a, in, a, in effect, finance being deregulated, it's being globalised, and so the cost of borrowing and the, and the barriers to borrowing as well sort of tumbled away from the 80s and the 90s in Australia. And so what that has meant, when you combine that with rising incomes, of course, but also very significantly rising household incomes as women moved into the workforce, you suddenly had this combination of incentives for property investment as well as tremendous dropping away of the, of the barriers to taking on a home loan. And then when interest rates started to tumble as well, you know, suddenly the amount of people and the amount of money that households could put towards housing, you know, grew exponentially and we saw that reflected in house prices. And, of course, if an asset is going to increase in value or if the market thinks an asset's going to increase in value, then everyone will jump on that bandwagon as well and so that helps explain why globally house prices have risen so you know to such an extraordinary amount and so far above wage inflation and that's because housing has become and you know this is the, the terminology that is used now but that housing has become assetized or financialized in, in a sense it's an asset that's globally traded it's a it's a repository for wealth for many people and so it's it's serving those dual purposes of both you know something that we consume we live in we need to meet our basic shelter needs but it's also become a, a very significant you know globally tradable asset Nicole that commodification of essential services is something that we've talked about quite a lot on the podcast and when we see the commodification of things like housing one of the implications of course is that they move from being a human right to being around wealth creation and that really shifts the frame. I wanted to ask you about some work that the Productivity Commission did in 2022 that you've responded to and the Productivity Commission called for far-reaching reforms around housing and that was something that most of you agreed with, in, most of us would agree with, in a critique of the Productivity Report which was called In Need of Repair. You and a number of colleagues agreed wholeheartedly with the need for wholesale reform. But you also argued that many of the recommendations made by the Productivity Commission relied on outdated economic thinking, particularly about the market's ability to deliver affordable housing. Nicole, I'd love to hear your thoughts on what kinds of new thinking that we need. 
Yeah, I, I mean, look, in essence, just to summarise the the main argument that the Productivity Commission put, you know, out there daily in the newspaper and indeed our political leaders seem very wedded to this. And it's an idea that putting aside all of those demand side pressures that I just described, and when we say demand, I'm not talking about population growth. We think that housing demand should be driven by household formation rates and population growth. Now, of course, that's part of it, but actually that is the bit that we would call housing need. Housing need is driven by rising populations and changing populations and an increase in the number of, of households. Demand is driven by the amount of money people can and are willing to pay for housing. So that's why you see an instant cooling of house prices when interest rates rise and the inverse. It's because of the amount that people can pay that's driving the um, driving house prices. Now, uh, an economist that is not sort of trained in the nuance of the housing market will just equate that to a simple problem between demand and supply. And they'll say just like, you know, when bananas are expensive, well, you know, produce more bananas and then the price of bananas will fall. Now, the housing market doesn't operate like a supermarket because houses are very expensive, they take a long time to produce, they're fixed in space. You can't move, you know, in the way that you can move bananas from one part of the country to another, you know, you can't do that with housing. And, of course, the other issue with houses is that they're not easily substitutable, you know. So when bananas get too expensive, well, you know, you ship to Athens or something else, you know, you, you can't do that that with houses. And so, in theory, according to this economic perspective, well, you simply need to allow more houses to be built. And in a perfectly competitive market, you know, just like perhaps the market for bananas, more people will come on and produce more bananas and that will reduce the prices. Well, housing just doesn't work like that because of the issue of land. And this is what people seem to seem to leave out of the picture. And the fact is in Australia, we have very, very limited places where people can actually live. And, and in fact, we have our successive decisions have reinforced what's called a, a sort of a, a centrality of our economic geography. And that is the, the, the places where people can work. And 40% of Australians have concentrated around Sydney and Melbourne. And in fact, the inner rings of Sydney and Melbourne have become the major places where people live and work. So if we produce more houses, you know, even in Geelong, that's not going to really fix the issue. And, you know, if we've created more jobs in a more decentralised, you know, effect that may start to allow new land release and new housing releases to help, you know, reduce some of the imbalances that we currently see. But again, there is an assumption as well that the only thing preventing new housing supply, which, you know, theoretically is supposed to dilute the, the price of homes and the price of rents, that, that, that the only barrier is planning restrictions. Now, in some jurisdictions, that will be true. You will have, and 
some you know local areas you will be able to find some some land that could perhaps be rezoned to a higher density residential use of the new residential housing and that will result in new housing development and where there are artificial you know, zoning barriers then they should definitely be pulled away but before diagnosing that as the problem you need to have a look and see whether you've got an issue with uh, planning approvals. Now what, uh, what the data produced by the Australian Bureau of Statistics and also produced by the planning agencies themselves around Australia, they, they showed, for instance, over the um, five years from 2014 to say, 2019, had record levels of residential approvals. Absolutely, you know, in, in many years exceeding the current target that's been put of 220,000 new homes per year. But the number of commencements, so the, so the actual translating those housing approvals into developments on the ground was much less, you know, more in some years around the, you know, 150,000, 130,000 mark. And the number of homes actually completed was even less. So that shows us that we may have some supply barriers, but they're not necessarily regulatory in terms of, you know, planning system, um, you know, a lack of zoned capacity, you know, too slow decisions, for instance, too uncertain. We always need to be vigilant. But the potential for planning reform of the of the kind described by the Productivity Commission to address the supply barriers that that show up in the gap between homes that are approved and homes that are delivered that gap needs to be addressed by some other types of reforms. Now, the other thing to say is that this idea that by dramatically increasing and sustaining new house building, and I actually think that the current national target of, you know, 1.2 million homes over the next five years is a good target um, for new housing development and, and we should throw everything that we can towards addressing that. But if we do that without making sure that a considerable proportion of those new homes, you know, 30% would be the international standard at a minimum, but even 10, 15% of those new homes are affordable. If we don't achieve that, we're not going to alleviate any of the pressures that have been described. In fact, Grattan Institute has done some modelling and they argue that if we deliver the 1.2 million homes, which I think is in doubt, we'll certainly be able to approve 1.2 million new homes over the next five years, but whether they will actually be able to be delivered on the ground. Now, Grattan argues that if they are delivered, that's going to result in a reduction in rents, which is wonderful. You know, we all want to see that. But the rental reduction that they have projected is 4%. In five years' time, Struggling renters can look forward to a reduction in rents of around about 4% through the supply side response. So what that tells us, and, you know, we don't, we don't need, you know, sophisticated forecasting to tell us this because we've had the previous five years before the COVID period when we actually did deliver against the types of targets that are being described now and house prices continued to ramp up as did rents and vacancy rates weakened and in fact during the COVID period when the international borders were shut we also saw house prices 
continue to rise. So it tells us that, yes, supply is important, but the composition of supply is much more important and the barriers to new supply are not the ones that are described by the Productivity Commission. They are not artificial, you know, local councils or, you know, even to use the pejorative NIMBYs, you know, people who don't want to see new housing development. Those people exist, but they're not stopping the housing development. What is stopping housing development is the difficulty of the private sector to obtain finance for projects, you know, that would deliver high density at points in time when finance is expensive, people aren't purchasing, as well as perhaps a reluctance and a, and a, and an understandable reluctance for the private sector to increase housing production at a point at which, you know, house prices aren't increasing, so their profits aren't going to rise. You know, why would a private sector ramp up production in a falling market. I hope that makes sense. Absolutely. It's such an extraordinary map, I think, of of our supply challenges in Australia. I'd like to just touch on, I guess, a side issue around the commoditization of housing. One of the significant shifts in the last decade or so has been the rise of the so-called sharing economy, whereby idle assets like cars or rooms or houses can be shared or rented out. There's enormous variability within the sharing economy from genuine sharing to highly profitable business initiatives. And of course, in the housing space, there's considerable debate and speculation on how platforms like Airbnb impact on housing availability and affordability. I wonder what your research tells us about the impact of the sharing economy in the housing market. Yeah, that's an interesting question. In fact, I started researching this with a colleague, uh, Professor Peter Phibbs, about eight or nine years ago, initially really attracted by the idea that platforms and the so-called sharing economy might actually play a really important role in releasing spare capacity in the housing system because one of the things that, you know, as I said at the beginning is, is the housing stock, it's not easily elastic. It takes time to build new homes. And also, actually, it can be hard to know across the existing housing stock where the latent capacity might be. You know, for instance, we know 10% of homes are, are vacant, you know, all the time. And that number has only been rising, actually, um, gradually across Australia. So, Uh, I was very attracted by the idea that platforms could help identify, you know, spaces, rooms to let, for instance, you know, secondary dwellings and provide a way of expanding, helping the, the rental market, in fact, even expand when you've got, you know, new influxes of people. But And so, of course, looking at Airbnb-style platforms was part of, you know, understanding that potential. Unfortunately, what Airbnb did was actually enable landlords, you know, rental landlords to switch very easily from renting to long-term tenants to renting to tourists. And they were able to, unlike, you know, other tourists, Operators who have to go through regulatory processes get permission to operate a hotel, for instance, or even a a conventional bed and breakfast. By using the platform, you could completely bypass regulatory processes and instantly advertise, you know, to a global 
tourism market. And so what we started to see, contrary to the, I guess, to the advertising sticker, which implies that you'll be staying in someone's own home and that hosts will be, you know, looking after you and, and collecting some income for their to help them meet their rents or their mortgages. In actual fact, that and you know, there's a very small part of um, sort of home sharing, if you want to call it genuine home sharing, a very small part of that does occur. But the but the bigger picture and the more concerning, the higher impact end of it has been landlords shifting to shifting from you know um, renting to permanent tenants to renting to to tourists and that's in Australia been particularly visible in cities like Melbourne where there's been a a dramatic increase in new apartments and yet many of those apartments have ended up rather than satisfying you know the local housing needs that you'd expect them to do when you see them being constructed but ending up on the short-term rental market and similarly in Sydney um, the phenomena actually began earlier there now it also affects regional areas, but there, of course, the issue is more complex because we've had a tradition of holiday homes being an important part of the tourism infrastructure in, you know, coastal communities, some alpine communities, and in inland areas as well, and that's been a a, a long tradition. But our research showed that the introduction of platforms actually encourage a new level of investment in those areas, you know, just to, you know, get a, a, a yield from that. And so that has, it also increased demand, I suppose you'd say, for property in regional areas. And over the COVID period, that has become a real issue. And even post-COVID, as we've seen population growth in regional areas return almost to levels, you know, that we probably might have seen in the 70s and um, in the in the 80s, where there was a sort of a sea change movement or a sort of a counter small counter urbanisation movement, that we may be seeing that now. We certainly saw counter urbanisation during COVID, and so when you have an increase in in demand, you know, from your base population at the same time as you've got an increase in investor driven demand for the housing stock, when we also actually during COVID saw an increase in demand domestic tourism as well that helps explain why that um, why the short-term rental phenomenon if you like created such a sudden um, impact on rental markets and that played out particularly in areas like Byron Bay in the far north coast and in um, you know Victoria of course in the Mornington Peninsula and around there, and in areas that have been dramatically impacted as well by natural disaster. You know, so you had, um, of course, all of the areas impacted by the 2019-2020 bushfires and the um, you know, terrible um, devastation and loss of permanent homes in those communities, and then the floods in the northern rivers. And ironically, even though we had um, sitting there this latent flexible housing stock that tourists were able to rent, you know, somehow we haven't even been able to mobilise that to um, to house systematically people displaced, you know, by those emergencies and the, and the flow and impacts that you see across the rental market. And so the, the sort of the, the quarantining, if you like, of potential housing 
through the short-term rental market has only exacerbated the housing issues that were um, sort of um, precipitated by those natural disasters. Nicole, you've done an extraordinary job, I think, of mapping the complexity of challenges around housing. We're going to take a really short break here and come back in just a moment. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Listeners, welcome back. We're here with Professor Nicole Gurren talking about the housing crisis in Australia and also about different ways of thinking about housing and about urban planning. And Nicole, throughout some of the conversations that we've had this year, we've had a theme of reimagining. We spent quite a bit of time talking about reimagining social policy. I'd love to hear your thoughts on how we can begin to reimagine urban planning so that it's both environmentally sustainable, but also able to contribute to building vibrant communities. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Urban planning is, seems to be the, the problem that everyone likes to point to. And on the one hand, you've got people like the Productivity Commission saying that it's it's too rigid and, you know, it's the reason that housing's unaffordable because it doesn't allow diverse or, um, you know, homes or it, it's got too high standards or there's some kind of, um, you know, critique there that almost like a vibe that planning is the problem there. And then on the other side, we've got a really strong and, and important environmental critique that urban planning is allowing housing to be delivered in areas that are subject to, you know, future and indeed existing climate risks such as, you know, very high temperatures, particularly in the new release areas of our major cities, potentially in, in flood um flood risk areas and, you know, and certainly issues around around fire risk as well, not to mention the the potential that good urban planning could offer in relation to achieving, you know, a zero carbon future, you know, transitioning to that. So, you know, you've got these two sides, one saying planning isn't delivering sustainable cities, it's not ambitious enough, and the other side saying, you know, planning regulations, they're just red tape, we need to, we can't afford, you know, to keep on properly assessing developments or, you know, being so careful in terms of the location and the design of of new homes. Now, I think really we need to take a step back from that and look at what plans we do have in place and 
the commitment that the authority that we are able to give the planners and communities in terms of sticking to and implementing those plans. And you'll find that many of the, for instance, metropolitan strategies that govern our, our capital cities and indeed our regional strategies, many of them are saying the right thing. They're saying that you know, we need to plan for a future of climate change. We need to embed principles like active transport, which means people walk, cycle, use public transport to get to, you know, work, school, shopping, childcare, all of those things. We need to re-green, you know, our cities and, and have, um, you know, actually enhance. It's not only about conserving biodiversity, it's about enhancing biodiversity. The strategies will talk about having a diversity of housing types and certainly affordable to people across the income spectrum and suitable for people across the demographic cohort, you know, from families with children through to, you know, older people and designing that housing in a way that provides for communities that, that has space for, for people to meet each other in high quality, you know, public realms in central, you know, suburbs and neighbourhoods that, you know, give us a, a diversity of places to meet, to shop, you know, to enjoy our cultural activities, etc. All underpinned by absolutely, you know, quality social infrastructure, you know, schools that are accessible, that are, you know, well designed, hospitals that we need, you know, recreational facilities and so on. Now that is all in our plans. And in fact, you know, the 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 modern urban planning movement began the turn of the last century, so the um, early 20th century, actually as a response to industrial um, devastation of the countryside in response to poor slum housing, overcrowded, unaffordable you know, conditions, in response to um, actually the, the potential to create using high-speed rail, for instance, self-contained settlements that would be well-connected to centres like London by, you know, rapid train. And so, you know, there's a very um, utopian element associated with earlier than planning, which we've lost. And then, of course, we also need to overlay in Australia and other post-colonial nations, we also need to re-look at the whole endeavour through the lens of country, you know, what it means to design with and to care for country. Country is such a, a, a complex and, I guess, multifaceted concept which extends beyond, you know, land to water to the entire environment as well as the spiritual potentially, you know, dimensions of that and absolutely to community as well. And, you know, we're only just beginning to think in Australia, you know, what does it mean to plan with an understanding or indeed just a, a willingness to begin to understand and to enable and recognise the authority that are, that the traditional owners of this unceded land have and their obligation under Aboriginal law to care for country and to help us see what that might mean if we 
you know, were able to properly start to do that in Australia. So the frameworks and the signalling, you will actually find all of that in our existing plans and you will find a translation of that in instruments that most people will never want to read. I hope they never have to read, but they're the little laws that that encode, you know, what you can and can't do on, you know, wherever you are. So zoning for housing development, zoning for mixed-use development, zoning for special facilities, etc. Environmental protections. All of those things exist in these in the in the current planning framework. And we hope that as we, you know, as our knowledge of climate risk increases, as our knowledge of the need to both do better things in the future, but also retrospectively, um, you know, improve, you know, retrofit our existing areas to a better standard. We hope that is all moving us towards, you know, a better set of outcomes. But against that, you know, we have things like the Productivity Commission report. And I guess the cliches that, oh, you know, housing affordability is the only thing that is holding us back from an affordable perhaps prosperous society is these, you know, the weight of these planning regulations. So we reduce a set of processes that are supposed to help take us towards, you know, more sustainable, more inclusive places. We reduce them to red tape without even, you know, looking and looking underneath the hood and understanding what they actually are. And so, you know, we're 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 really cutting off at the pass any potential to use our existing tools in a in a more um, you know progressive sustainable way. I, I always find it so interesting uh, when we give our guests an opportunity to think about how the system can be reinvented. And I, I love your framework that we've actually got the solutions here. It's just that we have these other barriers to it. I know you've been deeply involved in the last month or so with the Festival of Urbanism, and that festival, of course, explores the ways decisions are made around the design and development of our cities and urban areas. As we bring today's conversation to a close, I wonder if you might share with our listeners uh, what some of the most exciting ideas to come from the Festival of Urbanism have been for you. Well, this year's festival actually took on the theme of contested urbanism, so it's really quite um, quite salient, I guess, for this conversation. And so it was it was actually bringing to the fore, and I should say something about the Festival of Urbanism. You know, the Henry Hallam Research Trust is a is a cross university research centre dedicated to bringing the different bodies of knowledge together. To you know, from law, from medicine, from you know, business to urban planning, design, arts, politics, you name it, to throw it at cities. But importantly, to do that in dialogue with the people who are making decisions about cities and regions, of course, and communities, to do that in dialogue with the people making those decisions, so policymakers, you know, elected representatives, industry, the planning profession, community advocates, and very importantly as well, community members. And so you will see if you look at our, at the festival, you know, recordings and listen to um, to some of the, the, the podcasts that emerge from that, you'll hear such a diversity of voices from researchers through to, you know, community members and community leaders. And so let me just take you through some of the contested territory 
that we engaged with as as part of the festival and I think it will illuminate some of this discussion. So one of the first events we held was in Hobart and that was on mega projects, you know, looking at things like, you know, a big decision to fund a stadium on a waterfront and what might that do and what might that deliver for local communities and, you know, certainly there were some mixed but some passionate views. But on the subject of housing, one of the things that wasn't going to be delivered there was uh, was diverse or affordable, you know, housing that might connect into, you know, the, the tissue of that really important part of Tasmania and the Hobart waterfront. Our first event in Sydney was an amazing uh, keynote delivered by former Minister for Planning, Rob Stokes, and he contested the past assumptions and how we use assumptions from the past. In fact, planning, one of the, the criticisms that I'm going to put on the table about planning is that so much of our decisions legislatively have been bound by ways of doing things in the past and past information, past scientific information, etc. And so Dr. Rob Stokes was talking about how we might challenge those and change the way that, that we plan with more of a, a future casting approach. And he we had a response to that delivered by Dylan Combermerry, who is government architect, but has led the designing for country framework across New South Wales government architect, but also the the, um, planning processes in New South Wales. And that was an amazing experience for most people to hear Dylan talk about how we would do things differently if we were designing for country. And then just to, to finish, here in Canberra actually looked at water and the contests around water security and climate resilience more widely. And we heard some amazing uh, presentations about how we could redesign cities, not only inland cities like Canberra, but also cities, you know, in, in faced by flood risk, to be um, much more water sensitive and to produce not only better outcomes for residents, but also forms of, of design and landscape planning and architecture that would really help us be cooler, help us absorb water, be much, much more resilient in the future. Nicole, I, I think the perfect place to end this conversation is on that note of of both optimism but hearing about that exciting reimagining that's currently going on and we'll make sure that our listeners have the link to all of those resources that you mentioned that have come out of the Festival of Urbanism. Nicole Garan, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been a fascinating conversation. Thanks very much. And Greta, I found that an absolutely fascinating conversation. I mean, the depth of understanding that Nicole has of housing policy, of urban planning is really remarkable. There is so much richness there for us to take away. And I think there were two things that really struck me. One was the way she talked about the importance of thinking about country when we're thinking about housing, when we're thinking of urban planning. I go back to a conversation that we had quite a long time ago with Val Coombs from here at the ANU, and she talked about the way we can reimagine housing so it really works for Indigenous people, but it really works for different types of housing needs. And so if we start to think about country and connectedness when we think about housing and planning, it opens up all kinds of opportunities 
to do things a little bit differently. And as Nicole said, we are really only at the very beginning of understanding what country means and what that concept can deliver to us as a country. And of course, over this year, we have talked so much about the richness and the importance of Indigenous knowledge. And here again is a way that as a country, we can engage with and and deeply respect what Indigenous knowledge and understandings of country gives to us. But Anagreta, the other thing that I kept thinking as Nicole was talking was the extent to which we miss people in much of our discussions around housing and around urban planning. And I keep thinking of the things that children have told me in our research. We need places that are safe. We need places that are happy. We need places to play. And we often miss that. And of course, it's not just children that need those things. We all need them. Absolutely. And I have to say, that's where the conversation took me as well, is that I've been thinking a lot about the role of housing in terms of health. And I think about that uh, in day-to-day life, but I think about that particularly as we face an increase in extreme weather events around our changing climate, that the shelter that we need to survive will be absolutely fundamental to our health and well-being in an increasingly complex world. Today's conversation with Nicole helped to unlock the framework of policy choices that we make and the ways in which we can change our thinking about housing policy in order to create an environment that cares for people in places. So an extraordinary conversation today. And Anna Greta, as we always say, these are policy choices. We make conscious decisions about the way we want our communities, our society to be. And maybe when we're thinking about housing and planning, we also need to think about how care fits in and how we can value caring when we think about the places that we live in. What does a caring housing policy look like? Well, listeners, we'll leave you with that thought today. This podcast is produced by the ANU Crawford School of Public Policy, and we'll leave a link to the publications and the sources that we've discussed on the Crawford LinkedIn account. If you liked this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to keep up to date with our future episodes. And if you're feeling generous, you can leave us a review. We love to hear from our listeners and it's the best way for other people to find out about our podcast. We love hearing from you, our audience. So please do reach out to us on Twitter at ANU Crawford or through our email address, policyforumpod at anu.edu.au or through our LinkedIn account. Our thanks to Hannah Scott for production and to Darcy Brompton and Alex Jackson for background research. That's it for us for this episode. So from me, Sharon Bessel, it's bye-bye for now. And from me, Anna Greta Hunter, we'll see you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.